Hello, you're listening to the Australian Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo and you can find us online at writerscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published and write with confidence. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. Our team is passionate about all things writing and in these podcasts, we'll be talking to best-selling authors on their craft. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hi, I'm Danielle Williams from the Australian Writers' Centre. I'm at the Sydney Writers' Festival. I'm about to chat to Jane Gleeson-White. Her latest book, and this is a long title, is Double Entry, How the Merchants of Venice Shaped the Modern World and How Their Invention Could Make or Break the Planet. Jane, tell us a bit about this book. Sounds fascinating. Um, thanks, Danielle. I... It's probably best to start where I first started with it, which was at the Guggenheim in Venice. And so I was there living in Venice, the most beautiful city of art and culture, and I came back to Australia to do an economics degree with accounting. And the first thing my accounting lecture mentioned in the first lecture was Venice. And I thought, what on earth is Venice doing, you know, barging into an accounting lecture, you know, the most boring and dull subject on earth? And it stuck in my mind. It was such an extraordinary... um, combination and coincidence because I'd just been in Venice that I vowed one day to look into this connection and when I did I found the most extraordinary story which involved a Renaissance monk who published the first accounting treatise in 1494 and he turned out to be the a great mathematician who taught Leonardo da Vinci mathematics among many other things and so I became fascinated in him and he's a much overlooked sort of renaissance genius and then I became fascinated in how the story of this Um, treatise that he published in 1494 influenced the course of history and possibly created the capitalist system and certainly has impacts today um, right up into the financial crisis of 2008. So the book sort of traces this very unlikely and extraordinary history. Um, It's, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is on double entry bookkeeping, is that right? How on earth do you make such a dry sounding topic so fascinating? Um, I think because it's like, um, I mean, it's comparable, I don't know if you've read Longitude, but, you know, that was about a clock, and that could be ostensibly a dry, boring subject, but it's what the implications of a clock are, you know, and it's the same with this. So double entry bookkeeping, yes, is an incredibly dry subject, but what it made possible was merchants to... So first of all, it made possible a new category called capital, which was a new category of wealth, and it made possible the calculation of increases and decreases in capital, which we know as profits and losses. And so suddenly... Europe from Italy and and gradually across Europe from Germany to the UK and eventually to America was transformed by merchants all able to calculate profit and seeking profit so their businesses worked only you know as profit seeking businesses so you can imagine that you know from a feudal society where the lords had serfs working in their land to suddenly these merchants who were pursuing profit and 
transforming the world and eventually this was adopted in um, Britain and the Industrial Revolution was kind of, you know, it helped to facilitate the Industrial Revolution. So, I mean, so yes, itself is a dry, you know, double entry bookkeeping itself is quite dry and hard to understand because it's counterintuitive, but its its powers and its implications are just phenomenal and extraordinary and they continue to be of interest to people today because, as my subtitle says, accountants may have the power to make or break the planet. Um, this is a bit of a departure for you because your last two <laughs> books are about books. Yeah. So Australian classics and classics. Um, and I guess tell me, tell me more about those. Why you've chosen to write about other books? Um, it's very interesting because I probably had the idea, well, I definitely had the idea for Double Entry first. Um, so even though sequentially that seems to be a departure, actually the other two were a departure and they came about sort of quite organically. They, invo- they evolved out of a friendship. Um, I knew Kathy Mossop, the editor of Good Reading magazine, and she asked me to write a 2,000-word essay about reading the classics, knowing that I read the classics just, you know, without... I mean, they, they, were, they were just the books that I kept reading. Um, you know, why was I reading them in the 21st century? How strange. And so I wrote this 2,000-word essay, and it was so well-received that I suggested to Jane Palfreyman, who I'd been doing some editing for, my publisher, um, that somebody should write a book about the classics because people clearly need, you know, were looking for ways into this this um, sort of arcane world that wasn't really taught very much anymore. So she said, oh, yes, what a great idea. Why don't you write that book? And so I never even set out to write that book. It just sort of came to me in an indirect way. And, you know, it was the most fantastic opportunity to go back to all my favourite books and write about them for the general reader, you know, which is, you know, for a passionate reader like me, um, rather than in any scholarly way or any intellectual way, just opening up the books again so that people would find ways into them and also have a kind of... You know, compilation of of the sweep of the classics from Homer to Salman Rushdie. Mm. The first book was, and then Australian classics. My second book about books happened or similarly spontaneously when I was walking down Broadway in Sydney one day, thinking, well, "What can I give my French friend who's moving to Australia, who loves literature?" And you know, if only there was a book about Australian literature in the way that there are books about Australian art, just an overview that I could give her. So you know, rather than giving her Tim Winton or, mm. um, and I thought. Oh, I could write that book. That could be like the Australian version of classics. And so I suggested that to Jane. She said, oh, yes, what a good idea. So, so that happened. <laughs> so I'm not going to ask you the question, what makes a classic? <laughs> because that's so difficult. Well, okay. Um, I mean, if you think you can answer that, what, do, what makes a classic for you then? Um, what makes a classic for me? And it's interesting because it came up at a session I was in yesterday um, when we were trying to imagine what, what books we read today will be read in 100 years' time. Um, and I think all of us came down to the idea that obviously it's an exceptional work you know there's something remarkable about it. it's beautifully written there the characters you know but it's sort of more than that as um somebody said you know something like midnight's children might not be the best novel you'll ever read or the one that you most love or whatever but it's that's you know it says something about a particular moment in history that it will probably very likely be read in 100 years time and i certainly included that in mm-hmm. classics so i feel you know that they have also something to say about their times or about some significant thing although it's also very interesting because a book like Moby Dick, which we now consider a classic, in its day was completely disregarded and Herman Melville died a bit mad and very penniless um, if you can be a degree of penniless um, but um, so I, I think it's to do with the actual quality of the work and then something that it says about the world of its time or maybe about people generally that is um, you know, timeless yeah. 
Um, but, I mean, that criteria could apply to so many books. Yeah. So what additional criteria did you have to apply when you were writing classics and Australian classics? Excellent question. I had to apply the additional criteria of my own um, sort of... So because I was writing it from a personal and, you know, passionate point of view rather than an intellectual point of view I chose the books that I most loved and I also I added a bit of perversity and chose the ones that people might not necessarily have heard of most uh, you know associate with a writer like everybody knows Pride and Prejudice with Jane Austen a lot of people know Emma so I chose Persuasion because it's just the most beautiful book and I, I you know so I that was another way of, of introducing people to you know maybe a less well-known Jane Austen book but also um, I chose to invite other readers and writers to submit or to you know give their lists of their top 10 favorite classics so I had them scattered through both books so it sort of adds another dimension you know other points of view because ultimately it's a subjective personal thing. Are you tempted to write classics too? Um, I'm tempted to write children's classics. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but I also have three other things going on at the moment, so it keeps getting pushed further and further away. But, yeah. but yeah, I could also write classics too, especially as people feel so strongly about these things. So many people, either at festivals or people I know or people contacting me through my blog, have said, how dare you not include Vanity Fair or how dare you not yeah. include, you know, something else, my favourite book, justify it, you know, and or in, write another one included in that so I definitely think I could write another one yeah so I'm um, back to double entry and I mean you mentioned that you've got other projects on the go I'm just interested in your process of researching writing does it kind of cross over a bit how much is researching how much is writing and when do you know how to stop <gasps> That's also a fantastic question. And with Double Entry, um, I, well, happily I had to go to Italy to do a lot of the research in, you know, Venice and Milan and Florence and San Sepulcro, a small town nearby. So that that was purely just research and, and reading and, and taking notes and things. Um, and then I had to go back about 9,000 years, it turns out that accountants invented writing. So the the scope was massive and I spent a lot of time in a library and I really had to... So for that book, because it was such untrammeled ground, you know, no one has ever written such a book about accounting. Why would they? Mm. Um, so I had to do so much research across so many millennia um, that I really didn't start writing till I, I possibly did the research for almost a year until I started writing because until I saw the shape of the book because I didn't realise also all the connections that were going to be made I only sort of thought oh it would be fascinating if Maynard Keynes kind of used the principles of double entry bookkeeping when he postulated his you know general theory and it turned out that he did you know so the, the, the book grew as I researched it as I realised how big the scope was um, and then I I had to write like crazy um, as well as still researching because as you write more questions arise and and how do you stop the best thing about writing that book was I had a contract and a deadline <laughs> and so I had to stop and you know honestly I could have written it for 10 years I mean I've spoken to people since accounting professors who just say that is a lifetime's work how on earth did you fit in two years and that's why it's because I had, I had a deadline um, and I had to you know and I, I must say I also worked seven days a week right and did you find the process of writing this book very different to writing the classics yeah absolutely um, it was 
absolutely thrilling and fascinating, but the the reading was often so tedious. Um, whereas the other ones, um, because they were one thousand word essays, pretty much each chapter was a thousand words. It was so much, you know, it fitted into a day. I could read the book in one day and then you know because I was rereading, you know, and then write the next day. And it was a, a much more kind of gentle, rhythmic process mm. and much sweeter process because I was reading my favorite books and and writing you know nice things about them rather than reading dry dusty and literally dusty accounting books that hadn't been touched since 1940 you know um if at all so yeah that was absolutely completely different and the other was obviously much easier to write because it's also so much easier to finish the day with one whole chapter rather than finish the day with a million new Mm. thoughts in your head and you know I mean the chaos of writing a whole narrative rather than just a thousand word pieces yeah so um so what's next you mentioned that you're working on three more (laughs) projects um well i'm doing a phd so i I now know how to give myself deadlines um and that involves a novel and a sort of critical work and i'm doing um i'm writing about alexis wright and kim scott the fantastic australian Mm. novelists um and then i've just been on a trip a sort of accounting trip (laughs) to london and paris and new york where you know accountants hang out um happily for me and um i think i might have to write sadly another book on accounting yeah because i had no idea but when i published this book it was it just came at the crest of a wave there is a revolution in accounting which is really significant hence the subtitle accountants can make or break the planet because it's seriously possible that they can and they're beginning to realize that themselves and i've been talking to them on you know three continents and um i'm kind of excited by it so yeah possibly another book on accounting you've made accounting sound so glamorous (laughs) well is and because they're so powerful they congregate in beautiful cities so even just if it's only about that it's glamorous in that sense Um, I just have one final question what's your advice to uh, writers embarking on uh, a history oh a history Um, oh wow history in general I mean well as far as the likelihood of getting published um, I would if you can find something that hasn't been written about before i mean not that i went with that um you know in mind but it of course it hadn't been written about before because it was too boring um but also i mean i just follow your instincts follow your heart um as far as a subject goes and as much as possible go to the places that um you know your subject is um, taking place in because the moment I saw Luca Pacioli's town, he, he was born in a small town, Luca Pacioli being the Renaissance monk who published the treatise um, and the moment I read his manuscript the moment I held this enormous book from 1494 in my hands and went through the pages and attempted to read you know, his Renaissance Italian with my mix of Latin and modern Italian um, the whole thing just came alive so absolutely immerse yourself in the landscape and locations of your history would be my other piece of advice excellent advice thanks so much jane um good luck with double entry and good luck with your next project fantastic thanks so much danielle it's been nice to speak to you you've been listening to the team from the australian writers center podcast on writers and writing my name's valerie Koo. you can find us online at writerscenter.com.au and discover details about our courses seminars and popular online learning programs where we help students from all over the world. I'm author of the book Power Stories, the eight stories you must tell to build an epic business. 
And you can find out more on my personal website, ValerieKoo.com. That's Valerie, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.